ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hey there, it's Rosie, producer of Heat of the Moment. Our second season is wrapping up, and I wanted to share one of my favorite episodes with you on youth activists. Hear how one young woman is taking on one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Take a listen. Throughout the season, we've talked with people who are working to solve the climate crisis. From rethinking transportation. This is the largest electrification plan that we know about to date in the school bus industry. To reducing CO2 emissions. If you were to take less than 4% of U.S. waters to farm seaweed, you could offset the entire agricultural carbon emissions of California. We've also talked about how we'll need to be better prepared for climate-induced migration. I thought we would be there through my four and six-year-olds graduated from high school. And here we are, they're not even in first grade yet, and we left. As well as layoffs in the fossil fuel industry. I try to just be really cognizant that the solutions we seek for our climate have to also be solutions that work for our people and our communities. The problems posed by the climate crisis are many. And fossil fuel pollution continues to put the world in great jeopardy. Fair or not, young people are going to face the worst of the consequences of a warming world. Yet, they're pushing back. Youth-led movements across the globe are getting bigger, louder, and more effective. Here, young people taking over one of the global halls of power. This is the UN Youth Summit, but the most powerful person was not here to speak. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres was billed as the keynote listener. Young people also happen to be the most alarmed about the climate crisis. According to Yale's program on climate change communication, 70% of adults aged 18 to 34 say they worry about global warming. Compare that to less than 35% of those 55 and older. What's even more inspiring is what the youth are doing. Young people are making their voices heard by staging international school walkouts. Students around the world are skipping school today and taking to the streets to protest global warming. They also showed up at Glasgow for the COP26 climate negotiations. Young people feeling angry. You heard that on one of the panels. Well, they have every right to be angry. And now, young people are even taking fossil fuel companies to court. A ruling out of a Dutch court is being hailed as a landmark decision with far-reaching implications for environmental policy worldwide. In the Netherlands, they've just successfully argued and won concessions from one of the world's biggest multinational corporations. That story on today's show. This is Heat of the Moment, a podcast about the climate crisis and those who are working to fix it. I'm John Sutter. Our guest today is Jessie van Schaik. She's known as the Greta Thunberg of the Netherlands since she founded the local chapter of the youth movement Fridays for Future in her hometown of Amsterdam. 
She spends her time mobilizing the youth movement for big climate strikes and taking on fossil fuel companies. And all of this began when she was 13. Jessie was one of 17,000 plaintiffs in a landmark lawsuit against Shell, the global energy company. This past May, the courts decided that the company would be required to reduce its emissions by 45%. This decision is considered by many to be a major turning point in the fight against climate change. The ruling also has potential implications for the global fossil fuel industry as it opens up the possibilities that other big firms could be sued by environmentalists for um, climate inaction, the courts elsewhere... For Jesse, this activism started at home. I think the first sparks were already set at a very young age for me because uh, my parents raised me with a lot of consciousness about the climate and about the world around me. And I think the real spark came from just the international momentum that was going on in, I think it was the beginning of 2019, when you had this big scooter strike started by Greta Thunberg. Then it was like a general spark all around the, well, all around the world actually for all of youth activists that just woke up and were like, oh, shit, it's also about my future. So, you know, when you started striking, like when you were 13, what did that look and feel like for you? And, and how has your activism evolved since then? I, I imagine that the protests have gotten much bigger since you started a few years back. It felt at one hand uh, really lonely because I was the only one from my whole school that actually just cared at all about the climate crisis and was doing something. And then I met other kids that also wanted to do something and wanted to get active. And from that moment on, it just, everything became more powerful. Yeah, if I look back at my first, first steps in the activist movement, I was just striking on my own, like literally alone at this political thing called the Binnenhof. And then within three weeks, we had a whole movement that grew so fast that it was just powerful. This year, you were a plaintiff, like one of thousands of plaintiffs, in a successful lawsuit against Shell, the, the global energy company. And my understanding is that, you know, the courts in the Netherlands ended up ordering the company to cut its emissions by 45% by 2030, which was seen as a really big deal internationally because there hadn't been a court that had made that kind of ruling against a major fossil fuel company. Tell me a little bit about uh, what you think that case means and what your involvement with it was. I think the case really shows the bad situation we're in right now uh, regarding the climate crisis. Since activists often they're listened to when they have big demonstrations or when they make good points, but they're also a lot of times seen as hysterical people or something like that. But when a court rules something, that's being seen as a serious <laughs> point to listen to. And what is even more appalling is that they won't even listen to it. I mean, they now <laughs> want to um, go again to court to fight this ruling, which is, of course, uh, really worrying. And I think they will still lose the case, but still that just gives them a right for another few years to no need to stop with anything and just continue with their whole emissions. I mean, sort of along those lines, I know you've been involved in the Shell Must Fall movement, like trying to put pressure on that company, you know, which until just recently was based in the Netherlands is now, you know, moving to the UK. Tell me about that, you know, the Shell Must Fall movement and what the aim is and in what form that takes out in the world. Well, the aim is in the name, Shell Must Fall. And <laughs> it's pretty clear, huh? Yes, but we have, of course, several demands and um, Shell Must Fall just makes it really clear what we want. We want it even more radical than the court verdict. 
we want Shell to fall, like to be dismantled, because uh, Shell has proven over the last 60 years that they just have no intentions of changing. And they not only did they like basically cause the climate crisis, they're also responsible for so much land that's being grabbed and destroyed in uh, the global south, for instance. And still they keep on, well, keep on existing and keep on polluting and keep on doing uh, like they're pretending like they're doing so well and greenwashing. So the Shell Must Fall Collective actually just states the statement that Shell has no existing right whatsoever anymore and that we should dismantle the company, give the workers there a fair transition to green energy industry and that Shell itself should just be dismantled. I think this is fascinating. I'm wondering if you can talk me through a little bit more about your thinking on dismantling Shell and sort of ending it as a company as opposed to forcing it to change. This seems like a really important distinction. You're calling for a new crop of entities or companies that are going to, I'm assuming, bring about like a carbon neutral economy. And I'm wondering if you could talk me through a little more why you take that approach of dismantling the fossil fuel companies as opposed to like forcing them to shift. Well, I think the fossil fuel companies, like I said, they have a history of pollution, but also they get away with it. And I don't think they can change within a society that's actually healthy and uh, sustainable. And I just I don't see any example of any fossil fuel company that is seriously saying that they are willing to change, because if they are serious about it, they would have done it 10 years ago. They're now kind of changing because the public opinion is changing. But that's the only reason. So I think if your only motivation remains uh, making as much profit as possible, then you're just not part of a of the society that we need to stop the climate crisis. In the last several years now, I mean, I think there have been hundreds and hundreds of these lawsuits filed around the world. There's this group at Columbia, the Saban Center, that tracks all of these cases. And, you know, against fossil fuel companies, against national governments, like all making various arguments that kind of center on human rights and and justice, like a right to a safe atmosphere, a safe living environment, Um, and and recognizing that there are real damages and costs to people associated with the climate crisis. Um, I wonder what you think about the courts as a potential venue for figuring some of this stuff out and pushing the big players around the world to act more quickly. Are you optimistic about that? Or do you think that there's more power in like sort of a movement of the people out on the street? I think we need both. I think the thing that should be done is that corporates themselves see what they're doing and take responsibility like they should do as being grown-ups, as being a big corporation. But they clearly won't do that because it would take away their profits. So then we need activists and then we need a movement that actually makes sure that they stop with doing that. But I also think activist movements alone won't be enough. And I think for that, we need court cases to rule about something. And I think, of course, corporations and multinationals should listen to. But I'm afraid that's still, in a lot of cases, not the case. If they won't even listen to a court, then to whom will they listen? To no one except their own money. You know, there's, of course, been this like concerted campaign over the last several decades, the last few decades, by big fossil fuel companies to mislead the public and inject doubt into climate science where there's been, you know, quite a lot of certainty for a long time now. That sentiment, you know, like the people who aren't in favor of climate action and think that this is damaging to the economy, like that sentiment's really prevalent in the U.S. Is that something that you encounter? Like, do you have friends 
classmates, family members who question your activism and who push back against the way that you're approaching these things? I mean, my family members support what I'm doing, but they won't stand next to me on a blockade, but they will, for instance, walk with me in a climate march. So it's also, I think, they all support my climate activism and they all support the thought that something needs to happen because a, mm-hmm. like more and more people every day are seeing that and it's also the science is crystal clear about it, but they do not always see themselves within the ways of taking action that I do. I'm not angry at anyone that doesn't do that because it shouldn't be our responsibility. It should be the responsibility of the government and of multinationals, but since they're not doing it, we we need to do it. So I feel supported, but they won't all follow me on the barricades itself. You know, I think people all around the world in the last few years have started to realize that young people have an important and also like very unique voice in terms of pushing for action on climate change. I wonder how you see the youth movement in the climate space. Like, it seems like it's able to accomplish something that others have not in terms of like a moral clarity and a call to action. I have mixed feelings about youth movement in the climate crisis and in the climate movement because at Hmm. one hand, I feel really, really proud. We're all giving a part of our life. It also really connects us and it also, we make friendships and and we really do this fight together. And I think it's really important voice the youth movement has in the climate movement, that it's our future and our future is being taken away. And that's the, also the mixed feeling I have because at the one hand it's powerful, but at the other hand it's actually really, really heavy that we need to do that. I mean, we are almost all minors and we should be worried about other things. We should be worried about school and about our social life and whatever. So, yeah, I think mixed feelings, both powerful but also sad and mostly angry so it's a feeling that the adults of the world like especially like politicians heads of big corporations that they're not taking it seriously in the way that they should and so it's sort of the responsibility is falling on you know young people like yourself who really shouldn't bear the burden of all of that weight yeah it's it's not only that they're not taking it seriously it's also they're causing it and they keep on causing it i really feel uh, i'm getting mad again I mean, the, for instance, the multinational Shell already knew it back in the 60s. So that was way back before even my parents were born. And they still know it and they still mm. keep on continuing. I mean, they're not even close on stopping. I mean, you're like obviously part of a generation that, you know, is inheriting this crisis, like that hasn't been in those positions of power to make decisions about, you know, how the world economy runs and what, what energy is powering it. What does this look like for you on like a day-to-day level? Where are you putting your energy day-to-day as someone who clearly is, you know, is quite dedicated to climate activism and and to pushing back on this crisis that you're inheriting? Well, on a day-to-day level, the climate crisis and fighting against this is really (laughs) kind of occupying my life. Of course, my whole lifestyle is um, based on doing as little as possible to contribute to the pollution. And I also build my life around my activism. The people I work with are also my friends. Um, We hang out together. We plan actions together. We go to actions together. And it's really just a warm movement that I want to be part of and that I'm proud of. So yeah, most of my days are filled with climate activist things. And sometimes I take a day off and then try to enjoy other things. But it feels, it's, I don't know, every day it's getting a little bit harder to enjoy things that are not, productive for activism because it kind of feels pointless knowing that the world is burning and I almost sometimes feel guilty 
for doing nothing. When, when I just read a book or something and it's not contributing to activism, and I see this also with uh, other uh, young people, because we feel so responsible for the, for the activism that we're doing that we almost feel guilty when we also try to relax sometimes. Hmm. I mean, that sounds like such a heavy weight to bear. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, I know plenty of people of all ages who kind of take in the magnitude of the climate science like you're describing um, in this, these like irreversible changes, the fact that CO2, you know, stays in the atmosphere and contributes to warming for something like a thousand years. Um, and the the weight of that is almost like too much and it can push people into, you know, just sort of a, a sense of fatalism and not feeling like they can they can do anything in the face of something so big what what keeps you moving what keeps me moving i think is the movement (laughs) in a way that we that we all keep on moving because that's the only choice we have well it's that it's it's either that or laying uh on the couch depressed all day which we also could do (laughs) because i mean the all the news is is enough to get depressed but we won't do it because if we do that then we already lost and i don't want to lose i because losing is no option. Losing means I won't have a future. When you look to the future, you know, the year 2050 is kind of an important one in climate policy and climate science. Um, it's, you know, really aspirationally when the, the world would hope to be carbon neutral in order to avoid, you know, some of the very worst consequences of the climate crisis. Do you know how old you'll be in the year 2050? And I'm wondering what you picture the world being like at that point. Well, I myself will be... 46 and I actually try not to think about it because in the last IPC report it literally said that the world will will have changed irreversible and in no way we can expect now by the year 2050 and that's I'm 46 then that is I'm not even at half of my of my whole life then and I think also all the signs I see now from politicians and multinationals who are still doing nothing doesn't look very promising. I understand that there's a song like for the Shelmas Ball movement. I'm wondering if you feel comfortable um, singing a bit of it for us. <laughs> well, my voice is not great, but I can try. Um, it's written by a Dutch activist uh, who uh, is also part of Shelmas Fall. He's uh, like a climate activist musician. And it goes like, Shell must fall, oh shell must fall. Ogoni people not forgotten, shell must fall. Shell must fall, oh shell must fall. Climate crisis round the world, oh shell must fall. Well, Jesse Van Schaik, thanks so much for, for joining us. This was a fascinating conversation. Well, thank you for inviting. It was a really nice conversation. Thank you to Jesse Van Schaik for joining us. And thanks to Friends of the Earth Netherlands for helping to put us in touch with Jesse. The song Shell Must Fall was created by The Sound of Climate Justice. That's it for today and for this season of Heat of the Moment. We want to thank everyone for giving us another listen this year. And if you haven't had a chance to catch up on some of our previous episodes, now is a great time to download and binge listen during the holidays. While you're at it, please share your thoughts with us on this season by tweeting at us or writing a review. 
Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura Rosbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tady, and Zimone Perez. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. One of the best ways to stay up to date is with a foreign policy subscription. And we have a special deal just for you. Head over to foreignpolicy.com to sign up and use the code HOTM for heat of the moment and get a 10% discount. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com